0: In the last eight years, I've lost six mates to suicide that I served with. Some were still serving, some weren't.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out by the 217th. I, mm-hmm. right. I did feel a lot of regret. My friends were still getting
0: killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Pull often. Do I under fire? And that was
1: a heavy responsibility, I guess, mm-hmm. on my shoulders, that I didn't want to screw up.
0: You've to, to so itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It
1: should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. What you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country? The you volunteer for service was in effect you to put your life on the line. Craig Ball is a former commando. He passed selection with the 1st Commando Regiment in 2000 and is deployed as a signaller with the 2nd Commando Regiment. He went to Afghanistan in 2010 and 2012. He came on the show to talk about his experiences in the military and the mental health speaking that he does today. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Craig Ball. Craig, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Alex. Um, It's a real privilege to be here.
1: Craig, where were you born? Where did you grow
0: up? I was born in Sydney, uh, in Darlinghurst. The hospital I was actually born in later became a a block of apartments, Um, so it's no longer there anymore. But uh, I grew up in Epping, which is northwest of Sydney, and fairly yeah, fairly regular sort of upbringing, I suppose, for, for that part of the world.
1: At what point in your regular upbringing then did you first become, I suppose, acquainted with the military? Is there family military history, or when did that first sort of consciously enter your orbit?
0: probably from my dad my dad had been a nasho and um he still wore his old uh, from like in the 60s and he missed out on vietnam by not not a hell of a lot and he used to wear his old army greens working around the house so i saw that from a very early age he was obviously doing that before i was even i even came along so when i started to see that I, obviously you ask questions a little bit like my kids do today i've got three kids under five they all want to know about the stuff lying around dad's office. But I also had an uncle who um, served in World War II. His influence was, he was one of the last people I can remember, well, not the last, but certainly the last in my family I can remember, who, when he died, it was sad, not only that he passed, but it was sta- sad for, for what he stood for. And he was very much a values-driven person. I'll never forget that about him. And Yeah, and, and his service and, and the proud heritage around that and his son, who was a great mentor to me for a while, he died a, a couple of years ago um, now, was uh, also part of that. I had that influence around me a lot and I didn't fully understand it until my reserve career began in my late 20s. So that was, that was really interesting.
1: So what do you do upon leaving school and before you get into that reserve career?
0: Well, it was a while between leaving school and getting into that. When I I finished school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I um, was a mad keen skateboarder throughout high school. And these were in the days before, like I finished at the early nineties. So there was no, not a lot of skateboard parks and things like facilities to to use and, and to do. And so I kind of was into that and I I found my way slowly into hospitality when I finished school. Uh, I'd been working in a supermarket. So not, nothing that would really suggest that, but it, I got to a point in my life where, and this is, it didn't, it more than once, but where I had to draw a line in the sand and decide what I was going to do. And for some reason, each time the military became that factor, I had some influences in in my hospitality career very early of guys who had been in the army reserves um, and, more realistically had been in um, first commando regiment Army Reserve guys and that really stood out to me as something different and I was only going to learn <laughs> the further I went just how different that was but
1: <laughs> that's the thing you don't just join the reserves which is a great thing to do in itself but you then also end up joining the first commando regiment what was your understanding of what this regiment was and what year was this
0: okay so I would have been 25 26 late part of being 25 26 which is probably a bit old to be joining for a lot of people. Um, there's probably people who finish their reserve career before they get to that age. So that would have been 98, 99-ish um, when I was I was joining. And, I, you know, like a lot of guys, I'd read the books, you know, Bravo to Zero and The One That Got Away and, and this sort of thing. And at the time I was working in a fairly limiting environment as well. So for me, getting outdoors, working in the, that outdoor environment was a huge draw card. And, and I guess there was a sense of adventure attached to it from those things. And it, it is and it isn't that. I suppose in a lot of ways, as I was to learn, I really did not know what I, I mean, I attempted selection the first attempt, I didn't pass the first attempt. I'm never afraid to share that I was no natural at soldiering, I have to say that much, but with very limited experience. I'd done my best and I'd managed to somehow pass the barrier test, but I really didn't know. And sometimes when I reflect back on it, the as being a, an infantry, an army reservist in the infantry in Sydney, there wasn't a lot to do. The unit that I was part of was a Sydney University Regiment. And while that's really good at training um, officer cadets as chief part of what they were doing, as just a general, just as a general enlisted person, there wasn't a lot of opportunity, despite the fact that they tried to hold me back more than once from running away and joining commandos. <laughs>
1: But this is also obviously before 9-11, it's before 4-RAR, which is the full-time commando unit at that point is uh, geared up to be tactical assault group E, so it is a much more relaxed, uh, you know, context we're talking here. And so for clarity there, you apply to join one commando, and I assume it's direct entry kind of barrier testing you're doing, you don't have to, you're not served elsewhere and then doing this, you're going straight for that, is that correct?
0: More or less. I mean, they had a selection day, so you'd show up for that day and complete uh, a BFA, then some physical tests, and then you had an interview. And the first time I tried it, my goodness, that interview was really difficult. Um, They were like, I had some ideas, and here's to answer your question about how much I... I was prepared or knew how much of a shock it perhaps was. I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for. To a degree, I thought, you know, we'll just go along and, you know, pretty positive and, and sort of, you know, wide-eyed sort of approach. But um, they, there was a really like, I mean, I had three: um, had the OC of the unit, the I think the SSM at the time, and um, uh, or the CSM at the time, and, um, and perhaps another sergeant. And they were drilling me; they, they were pulling apart my plans because it's a huge commitment, and not a lot of people can do uh, to can be reservists that want commando and hold down a regular job family life and all those sorts of things and so they they really wanted to make sure that the right you know the right person was doing it and as enthusiastic as i was back then i was attempting this selection day before it even completed my recruit training my it training for infantry or any of those things i mean mind you though back in those days that was the last of the two week recruit training and I know a lot of people laugh at that um, myself included having done it and then years later having done three months of kapuka but yeah it was very different and but they were very much challenging me and what i had done uh, what my plans were and like i really had to work and it was great because i had to negotiate and work really hard to, to try to Get get past that selection board. So that was that was pretty cool. I, it was certainly made me go, wow, this is something that I, I have to be as serious as I want to do it, as I think I want to do it. These guys are really helping me to see what that is, and
1: so it was almost like being mentored at that point. I would say. And tell me about the time you do end up passing selection.
0: So the first time was with four ar Both times with four ar in two thousand, and I went on that course. It was three weeks long back then. Commando basic training or commando selection and training course. And Hans Fleer was still there. He was the chief instructor. And my goodness, at 26 years of age that I was at that point, he was one of the biggest influences in my life to that point. I mean, I was always looking for some sort of inspiration um, throughout those years. And this bloke, man, I got it like you wouldn't believe. He was so inspirational to me. And to be able to then come back a second time, like I basically came home, retrained Tried to pick up all the skills I could possibly in a short period of time and jump straight back on the course. He'd said to me, Oh, you should go and try a reserve selection. You'd probably pass that. And I wound up on it three months later and he, or two months later, whatever it was. And he was like, why don't you want to reserve one? I said, I'm sorry, sir, but there aren't any I'm told. So I just got told to come back and, um, I nearly failed a second time. And it was at one point we were, um, patrolling, doing some um, training one evening, um, around the area where we were doing it in Singleton and we were getting taught, um, or some really, for what was me then, very advanced um stuff from what my experience had been, um you know, slow movement and, and recon type skills. And at, at one point, we got back about, I think it was about two in the morning, and we we're given a few hours to ourselves. And most blokes, you know, like seasoned guys from the battalions, they're just having a nap or whatever. But I knew I had something to prove at that point. So here I am in the dark, shaving, trying to do everything I can to look switched on. And I, the first thing in the morning, I thought, okay, what can I do? So I went and grabbed the rubbish bag, went around and collected everybody's rubbish, and I, I went up and dumped it up the top of, of the collection point and out walks Hands Fleer and he goes, good morning, Private Ball." I'm like, ah, oh, I'm getting noticed. I don't know if that's good or bad. And, uh, and not long after that, I'd passed that phase when we finished the bush phase. And I was just so, I thought, man, here's my chance. And I ended up passing the course. At that time, I thought I knew all the answers as anybody would, I suppose, being that junior in their soldiering career. And I got the opportunity to go East Timor and I always regretted not doing it. I don't regret it anymore, but I did at the time. Took a number of years, and probably at least my first trip to Afghanistan with the regular army to, to get over that regret.
1: The late Colonel Hans Flair is very legendary in the commando community. So it's great to know that you sort of got to have that exposure and interaction with him.
0: Yeah, he was incredible, uh, as far as I could, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And and one of the great things later in my career was when he became the honorary colonel. I was. Always felt a bit sad because I thought there's probably young blokes running around this unit who don't really know who he is. And so I always, whenever I saw him, I go up, say, G'day, sir, you probably don't remember me, but you put me through selection all those years ago and I finally am back and I've been making a go of this. And then when he did pass away, I put my hand up to get go down to his funeral and getting Given the opportunity to go down to his funeral and represent um, what was I was then part of one two six signal squadron, and that was just such an honour to finish, to be able to say goodbye to someone who you know in passing probably wouldn't remember me, of course, people, but I remembered him, and to be able to do that made made a hell of a difference to me.
1: You end up deploying to Afghanistan about ten years after you pass that selection, but let's cover that in between decade first. You pass selection. You're with the reserves for a few years. You leave. You come back to the regular army in 06. Talk me through that journey.
0: I found it a bit difficult. I was on a bit of the outer. Those relationships, I guess, had sort of been healed, or certainly felt like they were healed last ANZAC Day with some of the guys from the unit who I never felt part of. And I, you know, maybe I was a bit of an outsider and didn't fit the mould so much. I'm not sure why, but there was reasons I left that unit. One commander not feeling so great about it. I was busy trying to build my career in as a speaker, helping people to improve their lives and, and that sort of thing. That was it's kind of tough in Australia. And not only that, it got to a point where I realized, look, in order to do anything, I really need more life experience. And I knew Afghanistan was kicking off. And I thought, look, let's have a go at this. I need some direction. I've been teaching people about cognitive psychology tools for years. I really need to put myself under pressure and use them on myself a bit more. And that's where that came in. And, and luck as luck would have it, I, I consider myself a extraordinarily fortunate to be um then offered at the school of signals i thought i'd be a radio operator just for something different little did i know later and on that first deployment i'd be carrying 60 kilos around on my back i thought i'm too old to be a grunt at this stage i went full time at 33 but i got the opportunity to do that it was just awesome it was a real i think look i haven't heard it enough and i certainly haven't heard a lot of veterans reflecting on it this way, um, but I've always felt that the Army is a university of life. It is one of the most amazing experiences anybody can have, keeping in mind it's not for everybody. For me, I was stubborn enough to keep cracking on despite when things got difficult or I failed at something or whatever. And for me, it was really a university of life and had a, for me, it was a big self-improvement program in a lot of ways to aspire to achieve more for yourself and to care for the people around you, teamwork, all that. So I, I was constantly learning on that first deployment. I felt as if... If I had a lot to learn, but I was with an awesome company of guys, uh, Alpha Company, Alpha Company November Platoon. And wow, because I was a bit older too, I knew I had to compete with younger guys and and really had to push myself physically, even just to get there in the first instance. So I I was committed in ways that I didn't feel I could be as a reservist. I felt as a reservist, I always had my private, you know, my civilian life in the background and back of my mind. And it wasn't until one night we were training up for that first deployment and we were fast roping into the uh, Afghan village up at, um, up at Holesworthy and doing night exercises and stuff. And I said to my platoon commander, I said, there's a world, this is a world away from how I used to feel as a reservist. And probably what would have made me prone to injury or, or potential accidents my mind just wasn't as on it. Whereas as when it's your job, it's all that it is, and I was a single bloke then too, you can just commit 110% and just focus and it's all absorbing. It was just so, so pervasive and such an extraordinary opportunity that, yeah, look, I'm, I'm just so glad
1: and, and, and blessed that I got the opportunity to experience it. Your brain's engaged at that higher gear and then all those extra one percenters keep maximizing and force multiplying and so on just to clarify does this mean because you did pass selection many years ago are you you're not just a signaler attached to them are you beret qualified as well
0: i am yeah beret getting beret qualified back in those days was selection and parachute course but then there was a reinforcement cycle that you had to go through but it was a lot looser than it was than it is today Where today and in the years that i was there the reinforcement cycle was a whole program that you got to go through and i never stopped thinking like a grunt being, even it was only reserve grunt, and and, and you know you still had that pride in in your soldiering that I I can't speak for other corps, but I, respect, despite being a, a radio operator, I still felt the heart of a grunt, and I still felt I understood. And most of my mates, and this is no reflection on my sig mates, <laughs> but um, most of my mates uh, to this day are still grunts from my, that time
1: from the army service, most definitely. And just to clarify for the civilian listener, very qualified is when you have past all that selection criteria, the reinforcement cycle, depending on all the specificities of the day, you are regarded, you know, as a member of that regiment. But then often they would have specialist signalers, medics attached to them on deployments like to Afghanistan and so on, who are not very qualified, but they still fight alongside them, outside the wire, but for their specialty roles so having someone like yourself who's got the beret and the specialty wasn't unique but i don't think it was um, too commonplace either would that be a fair assessment
0: it wasn't particularly common and things were changing also so things were changing for people from other corps who were beret qualified and it was getting to the point because i think sas started it where if you passed selection you could no longer be a signaler if you'd been a signaler or anything else you had to become a grunt which I think makes sense to a degree. However, a friend of mine who I'd known from reserve days, who became commando qualified and was a signaler, he then disappeared on us and showed up sometime later, having passed SAS selection and was a signaler. And so he it was really funny because whenever we'd bump into each other throughout our careers, he'd always do that whole one-upmanship and and put shit on me uh, as having been from a different you know from two commando. I always just laughed because I was like, well, you've earned it, mate. And I'm, he was a good bloke, and I'm really someone I'd really like to be still in contact with. But my goodness, given the life he has, it's not probably not that easy.
1: You talk about doing fast roping course in preparation for the deployment and how you're engaged at that higher level now because it's your job. What's then like when you are actually? in Afghanistan, you've got the 60 kilos on your back with the radio, et cetera, and then you're going outside the wire and then doing the job. What are those emotions like? First time you do it, the first 10 times you do it. I'll
0: be honest with you, it was a bit of a relief because my time inside the wire was spent getting all the comm stuff ready. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks this. A lot of guys who were SIGs and and then rolled out with their teams, honestly, it felt easier when time you got out there. My my first deployment was largely non-kinetic. There wasn't a lot going on. Although at the end of it, there were some pretty big things that happened. But most of our initial rollout, certainly for the three and a half months of the four and a half month deployment, when I was with the platoon, it was largely non-kinetic and i know that this frustrated a lot of the guys um but i yeah it was just an incredible experience and my God, that country, if only they could open up the to tourism, it'd just be the most amazing place, I think.
1: I know, images always make it look beautiful. What um, months are you there?
0: I'm there from uh, February until June, July,
1: that sort of time. So you're there for the disastrous helicopter crash? Yeah, members
0: of the November platoon. Uh, rest in peace to, um, yeah, Scotty Palmer, Ben Chuck and Tim Applin. I'd pulled out of the platoon about a week before that happened or two weeks before that happened. I had a real problem. And look, I don't want to mention names or anything, but I had a real problem with didn't get along with him. I didn't think through any fault of my own. I would constitute that the behaviour was very difficult. I'm not going to say anything more about it other than that. But it was just very, very hard. And for my own mental well-being, I pulled out with a month to go. I went and worked in the radio room instead. But when that helicopter went down. I, it's not survivor guilt, but it was certainly the feelings that I had. I felt like a near miss, you know, like I thought I could have been on that helicopter. And then I felt that for a few months. And then I caught up with one of my mates who had still been in the headquarter element, who actually got taken off that helicopter, like half an hour before it flew out for weight restrictions that they had. And then I, I no longer had those feelings anymore <laughs> because it was, uh, he came so much closer. I mean, I was out by a couple of weeks, but devastating isn't really the word. It was, um, it was just so hard. Words can't express and way more on the families. It was just such a sad moment. And to have things go so quiet for so long and then bang, things happen and, and stuff goes down like that, you just it helps to remind you in, in a lot of ways what's actually going on out there. So you can you I perhaps I fell into a bit of a false sense of security sometimes. It's um yeah, really incredible experience, I have
1: to say. You describe that deployment as overall not as kinetic as some of the, the members of the platoon might have liked, but Looking back, what is a sort of real moment that stands out?
0: Mates, there was a period of eight days where we went to a place called Gizab, flown in there. The locals had, had risen up against the local Taliban. The SAS went in there early. We came in uh, as a blocking force. They eventually handed over to us for part of that from memory. And that was pretty awesome. We were sent, you know, I had all my comm stuff. I got a lot of pride in that, delivering that comm service to my platoon and um, knowing that yeah, we were getting our messages in and achieving all the things we needed to achieve with respect to that. That was one thing that stands out. There were some pretty awesome moments just with some guys that I connected with. Mason Edwards had um, passed away in the tra- lead-up training prior back in 2009, around about October. And so to connect with some of the guys who'd been very intimately you know, a lot closer than that, than I was. I mean, I was at the headquarter element on the outside when, when that happened and and to be able to connect and develop some pretty incredible friendships with some of the guys that were quite intimately involved in that was, was one of the biggest ones. And it, it back to another parts of my life where, I mean, I've been doing, I've been on a counseling course. I found myself on counseling courses for years. I probably lost count of the sorts of courses like that I've done, but it, it reminded me like, Constantly throughout my military career, I got reminded that nothing is wasted and just about everything I covered or did in my civilian life was of use in the military. And this was one of the big ones, was the fact that I earned the trust of people I respected, I mean, saying people I respected. I'm, these these sorts of people are my heroes, man. Like, you know, and to have them as friends and to have them open up and share deeply personal things that were very difficult for them, it was just amazing. That that was that was probably the all and end all for me in a of ways was to have those relationships, to be able to serve those those guys, and to have them trust me. And and years later, um, have them say, "Look, I want you to go talk to someone." Like one of them being a sergeant, was asking me to go talk to certain guys after incidents had happened because they trusted me and they knew that I had their best interests at heart and that me having a chat and, and being a, a listening ear for them may have helped them somehow is, is incredibly humbling. So they're, they're probably the things that matter the most. And the friendships that have survived since, because I mean, everyone everyone talks about as soon as people leave the military, they scatter and everybody goes back to their home state or, their, or they, they start a new life somehow. But for the guys that have stuck around in Sydney that I've been blessed to stay in touch with and, and have them in my lives still from that, really from that deployment and, and how we forged our friendships and our relationships is just, yeah, that's it still it still gives me an awesome feeling today.
1: When you get home after that deployment and then the days, weeks, months and that settles and the adrenaline High starts to wear off a bit, are you're sitting there thinking, I need to go back, job's not done. I want to keep testing myself. That's good enough for me, Thanks. Where's your head at?
0: That is such a great question. Um, I was it took me ages to be ready. I wasn't ready to go back for a while. I didn't want to rule out going back, but I was struggling. I'll be honest with you, I was absolutely struggling. So I get home, I always, there's probably the, the joys of being a digger, but I always took the maximum. I'd always work out how much holidays I could possibly take. It was usually six weeks and I'd just go six weeks, I'm out. I'd book an overseas holiday somewhere and that first trip it was United States because I'd never been there and it was a dream to go there. And I put it sort of close to the end of my holiday, my time off, I had three weeks there. And in the first few weeks I just started to decompress I didn't want to leave the house. I'll be honest with you. To start with, it was very difficult. I didn't feel like socializing. I was all a bit scattered. And I remember a friend of mine called me up. I lived in Paddington at that stage and he lived, we lived between a pub, the four in hand. I lived one side of it, he lived the other. And I got a phone call as he knew I was, I let him know I was back. And I got a phone call. He goes, meet me at the pub. I said, I don't think I can leave the house. He said, shut up and meet me at the pub. So I did. And he bought me a beer and I sat there and I'm holding the beer, just looking deep into the amber color of the liquid, as I'm sure <laughs> many a good veteran has over the years. And he goes, start talking. I don't care. And I honestly attribute my recovery from that deployment to this friend. And I've told him heaps of times. And I've even shared this with audiences of veterans. I've said, listen, there's this whole BS that we go on with because When you pass Kapuka, you're broken away from your former self. You're no longer a civilian. And there's a lot who still hold on to us versus the cities. And yes, that helps sometimes or that doesn't hurt us sometimes, but there's times when it does and we can't afford not to open up. And I I get right on my high horse when I'm talking to them and say, listen, open up. If people ask, share, because they may not understand it, but it doesn't mean they don't care. And it's our job to help them understand what crap we've been through. I remember catching up with a friend a few days after that, and I was better, but I was still—I felt like I was—I felt like I was drunk when I hadn't had anything to drink. It was kind of a bit all over the place. And then the following Monday, a really good friend of mine who was a sergeant calls me up and goes, "Where are you, man?" I go, "I'm at home, man." He goes, "You're supposed to be at work. You know, a week of popping in and, and just making sure everyone's okay and, and just that duty of care stuff. Nobody had told me." And he goes, "Don't worry about it, mate. You sound like you're alright. Stay, stay at home." But it was like wow it was it was hard and i I pushed myself to move house probably not the smartest thing but took my mind off stuff so i moved to a new apartment because i was in a very small box of an apartment moved to a new apartment got myself all set and one of the funny things that stood out to me was that coming home i'd even gotten a mate who didn't want to buy any alcohol duty-free to pick up a couple of bottles for me so i could double my amount of duty-free alcohol i could get but until like the night or a couple of nights before i left for my holiday now i've been off for over three weeks i'd hardly drunk anything like and i was wondering is that more of a is that my risk factor, or indicated risk factor, that I'm I'm not coping well because I haven't just done the social thing, or just done the what I previously would have done to unwind. Yeah, hard, really, really hard. I struggled a lot, and the overseas trip brought me back to normal. And it certainly was the case on my second overseas uh, second deployment. I, I had a holiday not long after getting back, and and that helped going away and and, and just letting everything fall where it would in a, in a different environment. It was yeah. I, I didn't know. I remember in Vegas one night. I must have been drunk and talking to the cabbie. Open up to the cabbie, you know, just funny things that that occur for you. And it wasn't until months later that I got, well, almost, well, over a year later, or close to a year later, that I got a real dose of in your face regular army of this CO of um, the local SIG unit up the the regular army SIG unit up the road, chewing me out for coming in the wrong exit to the wrong entrance to the unit and not signing in for a course I was doing. That I went, okay, I'm ready to go back. So, um, but I really did have unfinished business and I needed to, to go back because I wanted to make up for having a bad trip. I mean, I, first I had a a working relationship, that I could not sustain. I had, you know, deaths of mates that were so like even Mason, although I didn't know him a lot before then we having beers for my birthday, about a month before he passed, like you just, in terms of my psychological diagnosis, since getting out, I've been diagnosed with a few things, but they were evident at that time. So I went straight on team after that for 12 months with tag east and we were moving around so much that you know once a month you got like about a week or two weeks at home when you're not doing exercises non-stop and i can remember drinking and being like okay it's now a point i'm not happy with how i feel about this you know i might have been drinking half a bottle a night which probably isn't a lot to a big drinker but i started to notice behaviors that i wasn't something wasn't right and that's when i started to cut back and started to you know which wasn't hard for me thank goodness but the disciplines i i with, which of the principles of, of why I was there and the, why I joined the army in the first place. I started to, to rely on some of those and, and that really helped me to pull back. To answer your question, lots of answers, I guess, tough, emotionally difficult. Um, it's, it's harder than losing a family member and to lose three mates in one go. And one of them, Tim, I was supposed to take him and his wife out for a night out in King's Cross because I was a single bloke back then and, you know, had a few mates. I'd, I'd done a lot of time in hospitality up in the cross. So to take them for a great night out, and, and that's
1: something that never happened. And, and he was such a great guy. So, and it's not just the three mates lost, but then the seven whose lives are and the families are, that are irreparably changed. Guys like Gary Wilson that we've had on podcast before, you know, lives change forever.
0: Yeah. I mean, I knew Gary well and I cry a lot. I've cried a lot. When I've heard his story, man, like, I, even though I know it and I'm intimately, but to hear him talk and, and our lives get busy. Sometimes when we've been out of chat, it's been like, dude, I'm so happy for you and, and your life now and just how strong and how, how brave you are. But yeah.
1: Afghanistan 2012. Talk me through that deployment, your role and what your experiences are like this time.
0: I went back and got way more than I ever thought I could. I ticked a number of boxes and and I never thought I'd do that. So I go back, uh, I got the opportunity because I had spoken to Schema and had my whole soldier crew management authority. Uh, everything's an authority in the military, I suppose, but uh, this is just another one. And I'd spoken to the Schema rep who I'd been quite good mates with when I was at the School of Signal. So he knew what I was planning to do. He said, consider it done. So I took a deployment early so I could plan my coming home and and my transition out of the military because I thought after two deployments I've done enough and I thought I'd just be sitting in a radio room typing up comms which didn't bother me it was I'd done a month of it before I left last time and thought something good's going to come here I'm just going to go do it I didn't mind doing that however I could contribute transferred the Delta company that helps in some ways because I had some good mates in Delta if I'd met on courses doing I mean basically the five and a half years or so that I was at to commando um i was on Rio courses in between everything else i was doing so i was trying to get all that done so i had some mates pretty much everywhere and i uh, got over there day two i think one of the sergeants came to me my my sig troop commander from back home was there and he said oh there's a the sergeant was to talking to there's a job you don't have to take this but we reckon you'd do all right at being a mentor for the um partnering force of the pprc as a comms mentor And i went I will do the. I want this so badly. Thank you so much. And so I went across. I got seconded to them. Had an awesome boss who had been a um, a veteran of the SAS, who then as walked after his, I say twenty years or so. And he was just, I couldn't
1: have asked for someone better to work with. So as walked, he's gone from non commissioned officer to an officer.
0: Yeah, and our platoon sergeant was a guy who I was aware of when I was a reservist. He was this, a, a senior police officer in civilian world with the TRG or Tactical Response Group Police Officers. And he had been a reservist and I met him as a reservist. He gave us a lesson when I was going for selection and that's the only exposure I had to him, but I'd heard of his name bandied around and it was just so nice to to get to know him and connect with him. And I guess I had a, you could say I had a different skill set coming in and Always been a, a speaker in some way. Always been someone who could uh, who could work well with others, I like negotiating. I like, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I paid my rent for many, many years prior to the military through my ability to build rapport with people um, and make them through my hospitality work. And even as a doorman for a little while there, I didn't, I never got in fights. I mean, I never had big punch-ups or, or never got injured and that sort of thing, just because I could build rapport with people easily, even in difficult situations. So I came into a new environment, no language skills other than what I could pick up as I went learning Pashto, and really just tried to read it and make these guys feel like the superstars that I believe that they were. I told them on day one, I said, I'm a guest in your country. When I addressed them, I said, I'm a guest in your country. And I had a great interpreter with me throughout that trip and a number of them. But uh, I said, tell them I'm a guest in their country. I'm humbled to be in your presence. You guys are the ultimate survivors as far as I'm concerned. And anything we achieve will be through your ability and your skills that you innately hold. I don't think the fact that you have... Um, You do not have formal schooling is any barrier to your intelligence. I think you're highly intelligent, highly adaptable human beings. And my goal is to show you how good you are. And I believe that we're going to do this and anything we achieve will because of that. And they just shone. They really did shine. And I know there's been, in some of the books you read, there's some disparaging reports of them, and maybe they straightened up their act a little bit with regard to some habits before we, I got there. But, you know, I got told all sorts of things. One of my um, bosses from back home goes to me, called me up one day from, um, from uh, Kandahar, and he goes, all right, mate, we're not expecting a lot of this deployment. We're not expecting a lot of, of, uh, of what to do with them. Just get along with them. And if they, you know, if they get bored of lessons and they just want to go kick a soccer ball, kick a soccer ball with them, and, and, and you know, a bit of the general stuff. But I, and he said, they always want three hours for lunch. They, they always show up late. And I said, okay, great. And so every time there was a break or, or something else, I'd make a deal with it. i say, okay, lunch is coming up, hour 45. They go, no, two hours. I go, mm, hour 50. They go, no. And so I let them negotiate up to two hours. I knew they were going to do it. It was pretty obvious. But because they felt that they had negotiated it, they had ownership of it. And so they would, they would come back to class before I would. I'd walk in five minutes before and everyone's sitting up there, up straight, and I'd, I'd take opportunities in the training to to make them look like a legend. So I was taking them through, for example, a refresh on the icon radio, and somebody Got the radio and plugged it into a charger, for example. Now that seems like nothing, but I get I get them to stand up, and normally their culture was very patriarchal, very very violent, aggressive, and they get in trouble for it, even showing an initiative. And I would get them to stand up and get everyone to give them a round of applause. And I remember this one guy Lando, and I used to call him Lando Commander, and I go, "Everyone, give Lando a big round of applause. Look at he's he's, he's showing some direction, and and just these little things." But they were were just warm to that, and and it got to the point where they were telling me everything and sharing everything. And it wasn't until I started to take them out for training, like actually out on the edge of the range, there was a sniper uh, range point that uh, had a really nice little hill on it, and there was a, a little you know dried up, long since dried up probably water feature. But we were learning HF radio, so you need water tables and things like that to to get the um the antennas to work. And I remember I had them out there one day, and there was this one bloke standing up and not engaging in the lesson, but he was talking to them all like as if he was running the lesson. And the terp said to the interpreter. Said to me, Do you know what he's saying? I'm like, You're the interpreter, that's your job. He said, uh, Well, they're asking him all these questions about how the radio works and the antennas and everything. And he's telling him all these amazing stories and started rattling off half the stories to me. I said, Bring him over here. I said, how would you like to do this for a job? He goes, this is my passion. He goes, I've got a bad hip. It turns out we're the same age as about 38 at that time because I've got a bad hip. He said, oh, I can't really go out on missions anymore. I've been fighting in Afghanistan since I was old enough to fight with my father. And his, his name was Naki Bulla. And I said, my job is to find you. The whole point of me being here is to find you and help pave the way to you to do this and to mentor where, you know, I think it might help you, but I think you have everything. And I will advocate for you up to know. Um, mid- Khan, was your boss, I will advocate to, to try to get you off missions because you are such, as I was to learn, such an incredible asset. And we worked very, very hard and he came, I remember one day he coming back to me and he'd been out on a job and we hadn't get got the guys to get the radios to work and it was a Oh, it was a back and forth and they'd go out on a job and I'd train them the day before, get them to demonstrate that they could and off they go and we get no radio transmission. And I remember one day, it was a i fr- I'd always go see them on a Friday because it's a day off. And I remember walking in one day with Paul, who was one of our interpreters, who was the nicest guy you'd ever meet in your life. But he was about my size. I mean, I'm 192 centimetres and 105 kilos back then. Um, and Naki Bull was about my size, but he carried the weight of the world. Like everybody respected him. And the three of us walked in one day and there's this poor guy, you know, he's, he's two of them who'd been tasked with doing the radio and they didn't want to. And they were scared to death and they thought they were in trouble. And we walked in. I said, let's go to the radio room and have a chat. And they were shaking and their eyes were like saucers. And I said, okay, please stop. You're making me nervous. I said, what Remember? I said, what did I say when I first started working with you guys? And they, <laughs> I don't think they could remember their names if I had asked them. I said, um, I'm a guest in your country which means you can't be in trouble with me. Okay. It doesn't work that way. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to, you're not in trouble for anything, but we backed and forth and I got them to lower the guard. And I said, why do you think the radios aren't working? And they said, the radios aren't working because we don't believe they can work. And I went, oh, thank you. And I gave them a big hug and we all had a big hug. And I, didn't, I was still confused. I didn't know what I was getting at. And I said, look, that's all I care about. I said, look, that truth is what I care about. I said, that's all that matters because I said, listen, all I'm here to do is for you to trust me. And when Nucky Buller goes out with you next time on a job and have a go. Now, I'm not going to say that they will or they won't work, but let's have a go and try. Were you prepared to at least try to see if you can get them to work? And they said, yes. I said, perfect. Let's have a go. And it was the next job that uh, Nucky Buller came running back with a video on his phone and I needed the terp to interpret it. And he goes, this is the radios working over 200 kilometers away in Northern Kandahar. And I was like, job is done. We've achieved it. And we jumped up and down and had a hug. And it was just so awesome that through their efforts. And I did a huge thank you. And that was getting closer towards the end of the deployment. And couple of nights before that deployment finished, Ramadan was starting, I think, the night before, the next day, and Naki Bulla came to see me, and he said, listen, you've been my best friend. I never, you know, I never know if I'll ever see you again. When do you think you can come back? And I had no idea. I said, look, the best I could ever hope for would be this time next year. He said, I might be dead by then, and, you know, really painted the the reality of that. And I got some photos still of that that last meeting that we had. But the next day was my final um final meeting every Saturday we did a we did a meeting I'd do a comms update and and share about what had happened uh what was going on with the comms so that all the and all the platoon commanders from the partnering force were there there was three platoons from memory and I was also there to introduce my replacement this guy called Brett and I went out of my way I didn't have a report that day and I went out of my way to introduce him and and stuff but I I just made it a big thank you I said thank you for and I, I used the big challenge for me was to use language that when it was interpreted would speak to the way that they felt because they used language in a very different way. And there's some things that we may never fully grasp about their communication style. So I just did my best. And I said, listen, thank you for opening your hearts to me. I said, you'll always be with me. And I said, it's just been the most amazing experience that I never thought I would get to know you so well. And thank you so much. And one of their platoon commanders got up who I'd busted for uh, for selling petrol that we, <laughs> we gave him for his vehicle, I think one time. And he, he said, you know I had a Pashtun name it was Hoyshal, which means happy and he said Hoyshal, you're always Hoyshal. you're one best we've ever had and we wish you a long and happy we want to thank you for your your service to us and it meant a lot and we um, we want to wish you a long and happy life back in Australia and it was just uh, I've had a few moments in my various careers where I could just say shoot me now I could die happy and that was one of those it was just so incredible and I like I said at the start of just explaining this deployment I got so much more than I ever thought I would from my military service at that point it, it, it's it's sad to think about what they um what they probably went through after uh things changed in that part of the world but uh yeah to, to know that you made a difference even for that time was pretty incredible
1: you come home from that really gratifying deployment you feel like you've nailed your job in all these capacities i can hear the energy and passion in your voice that you look back with such pride at the work you achieved and the great work you did with the afghan people how do you find that experience of coming home by comparison and then take me through your journey from there out of the army and into the work you're doing today with men's mental health and veteran transition?
0: Okay. So I came home, obviously I'm feeling a hell of a lot better, um, but still not quite there as the a lot of guys and ladies when they come back, you know, have that experience of not really being with society. It was never as profound for me. I always realized, you know, this is their lives and people's lives and, and we were fighting a war that nobody really thought much about back home. So kind of got that. But yeah, still had some stuff to work through. And so yeah, had a holiday, came back, felt a bit more normal. And then study had taken off in between the first deployment and the second deployment. I'd gone back to try to finish a very old psych degree. So I was plugging away at that and just pushed myself probably harder than I needed to as part of that process. I didn't know what I was going to do, but uh, getting out, but that deployment had shaped me and helped me to realize I had a lot of latent skill sets that I didn't know. What they were, and it was just through networking that helped me make my transition. I was a member of Bondi Surf Club at the time. On the patrol that I worked on, it was a mentoring patrol for kids in high school who would who wanted to be life sa- volunteer lifesavers. And um, one of the mums I met. Uh, worked at one of the big banks, and I said, "Hey, maybe you know what I'm, I'm looking at here. Here's what I did. Here's all the things that we achieved." And uh, I'm doing a psych degree, and I'm looking for an application in the corporate world. She goes, "Oh, you're looking for change management." I was like, "What's that?" She goes, "Trust me. Start reading about it. There's plenty on it. And when you get into it, you'll you'll be so busy, you'll never, you know, your biggest problem with trying to take a holiday." And so I started looking into that, and a friend who had been a reservist back in the day had been doing that job for five years, and. Uh, he reached out to me on LinkedIn and I looked at his profile and that's all it was, was change management. I was like, wow. I thought if all I do is quiz this guy about change management, I'm going to look pretty insincere. So I didn't chase him about it straight away. And then I ran into him on Anzac Day uh, that year. And um, we then met every month for a beer and talked about it. And he shared me lots of things I had needed to know. And then just through networking, I'd, I'd taken a gig, I would say a gig, I'd taken a posting to HMAS Canberra, which is one of the new ship, uh, Canberra, I think it was, the the aircraft carrier for helicopters that the the Navy invested in, uh, to help a mate get back to SF comms. And that was part of my transition. That was my transition plan because the other one had fallen over and it meant I was close to the city. The boat hadn't arrived yet and I know a lot of Navy people wouldn't like me to call it a boat, but the boat hadn't arrived yet, and so I was able to go into the city for interviews, and I started networking through a group called Defence in Business. First night I went there, I dragged another mate along who had gotten out. I said, we're going to network here, and and it's because I went back to my old roots of networking. I used to love networking and met a guy there who worked in one of the big telcos, and he paved the way. Ex Royal Navy guy and just really went all out and I, I just warmed to it. I was like, oh, this is so good. And he got me interviews with people before too long. I had a, had a gig and I'd been working in that. And because that work deals with, and I don't want to delve into how all well, the things about change management, but it's the people side of projects and the people side of change in organisations. Well, being a people person and having this modality, if you like, or this skill set that I, that I taught to a lot of people. I mean. In in my first deployment, I'd been asked to teach my presentation skills course to some of the guys in the platoon who would be going on their subject one for corporal courses or junior leader courses after that deployment to help improve their presentation skills. And I taught, which is rational emotive behavior therapy, I was teaching that to deal with and how to deal with nerves. And so I had this skill set and it came out in one of my early change management roles as a resilience program. And it helped uh, one of my, what is one of my biggest, has been one of my biggest clients now to date achieve a thousand days and no lost time injuries. This is a huge deal for these guys. No lost time injuries is massive. It means, you know, everything from an injury that gives you a day off work up to, to a, everything up to a fatality. It's a huge, huge space. And so to help them to achieve that much has been incredibly humbling. I've always advocated for helping because, I mean, I didn't go full-time till I was my 30s. So already had that civvy headset, so that kind of, or that civvy mindset. So being a civilian wasn't hard to get back into being, but also I, because I had the trust of a lot of the guys was I always reached out and was trying to help people transition as much as I can. And I still do today. I don't get a lot of guys coming my way or, or ladies going my way, but I'm always open to it and helping people go in that, that direction because it's challenging. And unfortunately, when you're in, you don't get told, hey, you're, you're in the biggest university of life going the army is the biggest you will come out with such a powerful set of skills and the analogy i reflected on the other day that i thought might be useful uh, especially to people transitioning is there's i don't know if anyone's ever heard the story of the elephant it's very not really a story but the elephant uh, at the zoo uh, sorry at the, at, the, at the circus with a tiny with its you know being tied to a tiny little pole and the kid asks his parent you know why is that such a powerful element elephant tied to the pole and it's because it's conditioned from a very young age and if someone's done 20 years they're not told that that's the equivalent you have the power of an elephant versus a tiny tent peg in terms of being a military person getting out you have so many skill sets that the civilian world just does not equip you with the disciplines for one but there's so many the ways of thinking strategic thinking there's so many skills that you have and I love the opportunity to help people to see that and some of my mates um, who I've helped have gone on they've come back and tell me interviews and things they've been through. And I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea I could help somebody that much. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing. And men's mental health became a thing because in the last eight years, I've lost six mates to suicide that I served with. Some were still serving, some weren't. And one in particular, I was working with him weekly to help him get into my, my line of work in the consulting space. He already found him a mentor and he just didn't show up to the, the coffee, the first coffee with her to do that. And um, so been through the heartache and I know what it's like and so I just decided let's take my skill set of, of what's called OBT and, and make more of a system of it for people to be able to help them and focus on men's mental health and one of my goals is to deliver and help veterans through that program um, as sort of like a pro bono thing you know I mean it's not the main driver to do a pro bono or anything like that but it's, it's something that I market to the general public but I'm always happy to help um, veterans who re- fellow veterans who reach out because life's tough enough
1: you know and people who are listening craig who might be interested in reaching out to you about this work how can they find you
0: my website is changeseminars.com. my email info at change you can find me as Craig Ball, uh, Men's Mental Health Speaker on Facebook. I have a Facebook community that's free to join um, called the Men's Mental Health Transformation. I focus on men's mental health just because, it's, you know, that's where I've chosen to, to set up my niche. But I'm happy to talk to any veterans anywhere. It doesn't matter. That's my life's work is to, to help and, and to contribute some way to some people's well being to somehow improve that. So
1: well, I love, Craig, that you've taken the excitement, the enthusiasm, the energy you had for working with the Afghan people on that deployment in a comms mentor role to channeling that to Australians in a serious and needed space. I guess looking back in the context of this conversation we're having today, what is the biggest thing that you took away from your time in the military that's enhanced and equipped you for life today?
0: Probably that you can have an effect on your outcome, whatever you're given, whatever the situation presents itself in life, be that family trouble or anything else is that you have the power to have an impact on that. That is positive And you can turn these things around, no matter how bad they get, no matter how bleak it is, you can turn that around. And the military gives you more than enough skills doesn't give you the best coping mechanisms, but that's just how things are. They do the best they can, I guess. But we as veterans owe it to ourselves to do that and to try to find a way.
1: Craig, you've shared a variety of experiences and perspectives today. Thank you for your service, for your time today, for the great work you're continuing to do for our community and for sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. For more on that catastrophic 2010 helicopter crash in season four, listen to number 100, Gary Wilson. In the three months I'd lost half my body weight. I was below 50 kilos and this nurse put me back in bed. She says, Mr Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash. And then listen to the episode, The Partners, Renee Wilson. Then the padre got out of the car and he introduced himself as the padre. And I looked at him and I remember thinking, well, I'm fucked. That's it. They don't bring a padre to tell you that someone's hurt themselves. This is serious. Then fast forward to this year and watch on YouTube the video documentary episode, Life After Service, Gary and Renee Wilson. That's sort of what's kept us going together. And no, you you're both on the same side. Yeah. You no, know, you're not fighting. You're fighting with each other, not against each other. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast on Twitter at lotlpod, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, and our email is podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...